Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 8th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present on the Gospel of John, our commentary on John, Part 4, and it's subtitled, The Lamb of God. Presenting Part 3 of this commentary on the Gospel of John, which was titled, The Sons of God, we gave a full explanation of our translation of John chapter 1, verses 11-13. through 13. And we cannot sufficiently stress how important it is to understand the impact which one's worldview can have on one's interpretation of Scripture. But I also understand that these presentations may at times be very technical and hard to digest. However, we must develop a scholarly basis for a proper understanding of the text before we can even begin to claim to understand the Bible. If one is persuaded by the commonly accepted interpretations of the Jews concerning the ministry of Christ, then it is easy to accept the King James Version and other popular translations of these verses. So like a lamb being led to the slaughter, one may helplessly be led to believe that the universalist perspective of Scripture is true, and that all those who merely profess a belief in Jesus must therefore be accepted as having somehow become sons of God by a mere profession of their lips, and as if they could possibly even make that choice for themselves. However, that position is actually in direct conflict with Scripture. Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 7, that not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Amos 3.2 The children of Israel are the only people he knew in all the earth. Likewise, the Apostle James said that thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So we see that mere belief is not enough to somehow make one a child of God, even if it is a belief which is accompanied by many wonderful works, as we just saw in Matthew chapter 7. But if we believe that every word of God is true, and that these scriptures do not conflict with themselves, then it is evident that these passages, along with many others found in Gospels, 
such as the parable of the tares of the field, or the statement by Christ concerning plants which Yahweh did not plant, sufficiently indicate that the common interpretation of John chapter 1 verses 11 through 13 must be wrong. However, if we believe what the Gospels themselves have informed us, that Christ had to come, that Christ had come to fulfill the promises made to the fathers, and to gather the long-lost children of Israel to himself, and that he came only for the so-called lost sheep of the children of Israel, sons and daughters, which were already sons and daughters, as the scriptures frequently state, and then, if we examine the many messianic prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which make those same professions, then we can translate John 1, 11 through 13 appropriately, in a manner which does not force a conflict with any passage of scripture or with any aspect of Greek grammar. And we find that it should be read to say that he came into his own land, and the men of the country received him not. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Israel are to which the children of Yahweh are to attain, to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, nor from of the desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from Yahweh. Those born of Yahweh are those born in accordance with the word of Yahweh, and not according to the will or desires of man. There are examples of this throughout the scriptures, of the surviving sons of Eve, which were Cain and Seth, only Seth was born in the image and likeness of Adam, so Seth rightfully received the inheritance of the children of Adam in the time of Noah, which were engaged in the race mixing which is described in Genesis chapter 6. Only Noah was perfect in his generations, so he was preserved to continue the inheritance of the sons of Abraham. Only Isaac was born according to the word of Yahweh. Ishmael was born of the flesh, out of the will of man, in the person of Sarah, who beckoned Abraham to impregnate a bondwoman. So in the end, Sarah had her own son, and Ishmael was rejected. The younger Isaac receiving the birthright and the inheritance. Of the sons of Isaac, Esau was rejected, since being a fornicator and a race mixer, he fornicated, he forfeited, he fornicated it away. He forfeited his birthright, and it fell to his younger brother Jacob, as Paul explains in the closing chapters of the epistle to the Hebrews. Cain slew Abel and was raised up in his place. 
the whole world was engaged in race mixing, and the pious Noah was preserved to carry on. The hour may have been far advanced, but Sarah was still able to bear a child. This is the lesson which we learn from the scriptures, that against all odds the word of Yahweh is upheld according to his expressed will. So if the Old Testament prophets inform us repeatedly that the purpose of Christ is to redeem and ultimately to regather the so-called lost children of Israel, how can we interpret scripture in a manner which is contrary to those promises? And this we see in Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. And there we learn that black lives do not matter. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons, people who were already sons, Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters, who were already daughters, from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. And of course, they must be references to Jacob in chapter 1, where Yahweh said, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for, for I have redeemed thee. The context is not different in verse 7. It's merely repeating what it already said in a slightly different manner. Legitimate children of Israel would be preserved by the promises of God in the same way that their ancestors had been preserved in spite of the obstacles. And black lives don't matter. If we look at ancient history, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba were given up by Yahweh and when they were given up, they were overrun by blacks. That's how they were given up. The apostles of Christ certainly interpreted scripture in a manner which was consistent with those promises. James wrote only to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and Paul was in bonds and opposed and judged by the Jews, for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes 
which evidently doesn't include the Jews. Instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake I am accused of the Jews. So the twelve tribes were not Jews. And throughout his epistles, Paul informed us as to the identity of those tribes, and ancient history substantiates his identifications. According to the King James Version, in those same epistles, he wrote only 14 epistles that we have today, in those same epistles, Paul had used forms of the terms reconcile or reconciliation on at least a dozen occasions in reference to people descended from those same tribes. So we can confidently identify who those are who are born of Yahweh and those who are the sons and daughters of God and those who are not. Now we shall continue with our presentation of John chapter 1. I don't remember ever advising this before, but it might help those who listen to this podcast to read along with the Christogonian New Testament, which is freely available at our website, if one does not have it in print, or even read along from a King James Version, and that may help to better follow our commentary. So we commence with John chapter 1 from verse 14. And the word became flesh, and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his splendor, splendor as the most beloved by the Father, full of favor and truth. <coughs> and there's actually a lot to say about this verse. The verb tabernacled is from the Greek word skenao. That's a difficult word to pronounce. It's an accented short o followed by an omega, which is a long O. Skenao is Strong's number 4637. And it appears appears elsewhere in the New Testament only in four passages of the Revelation of Christ. The verb is derived from the noun skene, which is a covered place, a tent, according to Liddell and Scott. And this word, along with the related synonyms skenus and skenoma, appears, the three of them, appear in the New Testament quite frequently. Paul of Tarsus was described as a skenopoius, or a tent maker, in Acts chapter 18. The Feast of Tabernacles was called Heiorte, Hey, Skenopegia, in John chapter 7, which may be roughly interpreted as the feast of the setting up of tents. Here, John, by describing the body of Christ as the word became flesh, which tabernacled among us, is certainly making another allusion to prophecy and one more assertion on behalf of Christ that he is the Old Testament God who had promised to tabernacle among the children of Israel to set his tent among his people. This we see in direct connection with the promise of a new covenant 
in Ezekiel chapter 37. Moreover, from verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. That would be a reference to a new covenant. It's not as explicit as the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, but it's just as important. It is certainly an everlasting and new covenant. And I will place them and multiply them, this all being addressed to the children of Israel, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, meaning to set Israel apart separately. When my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Paul of Tarsus also made the analogy of the physical body of Christ as the tabernacle of God in Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Having this understanding, Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, within the person of Joshua Christ dwelt as much of the essence of Yahweh God as could dwell in the body of a man. So we read of the city of God in Revelation chapter 21, where Christ also repeats other assertions which had been made concerning him in other places. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away <coughs> excuse me, all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, unto John, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Later, the Apostle Peter, in the first chapter of his second epistle, had used the same analogy in relation to his own flesh as this tabernacle and this my tabernacle, understanding, as Paul had also, 
that the flesh was only a vessel for the real person which is found in the spirit. This Paul had elucidated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he wrote, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, <laughs> eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be, that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So the tabernacle in these contexts is the body of a man. And in the case of Yahweh, where he promised that my tabernacle also shall be with them, he was referring to the person of Yahshua Christ. So here in verse 14, John declared the fulfillment in Christ of that very promise. Seen in Ezekiel, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But now, we must once again wait upon him, as it is promised in the Revelation, for the time when it may be said that the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. Moving on to another aspect of this passage, this 14th verse of John. According to the intermediate Greek-English lexicon of Liddell and Scott, the Greek word doxa, Strong's number 1391, is a notion, true or false, and so an expectation, an opinion, a judgment, a mere opinion or conjecture, to imagine, suppose, the opinion which others have of one, estimation, reputation, credit, honor, glory, the estimate popularly formed of a thing, of external appearance, glory, splendor, effulgence, citing the New Testament as the authority for that last definition regarding external appearance. For that reason, it's very often effulgence in the Christogenian New Testament. But here, where John referred to the doxa of Christ as being full of favor and truth, he was not describing mere physical appearance. So, while we translated the term as splendor, where the King James Version has glory, reputation may have been even more appropriate. And in that case, another verb, Theaomahi here in Strong's, which is Strong's number 2300, may have been rendered as contemplated rather than beheld. That they contemplated his reputation, reputation as the most beloved by the Father, full of favor and truth. Here we also see 
here in this passage, we also see the first of five occurrences of the word monogenes in John's writing, four of which are in his gospel and one in his first epistle, all of them in reference to Christ. The same word, monogenes, appears three times in Luke, where none of them refer to Christ, and once in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, in chapter 11, where Paul used the term in reference to the patriarch Isaac. What follows is from our commentary on Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, from our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, part 13, which was subtitled, The Substance of the Faith. First, we will cite the passage where Paul used the word. By faith, Abraham, being tried, had offered up Isaac, and the best beloved, that word monogenes, the best beloved being offered up, took upon himself the promises, in reference to whom it was said, that in Isaac shall your offspring be called. And now we shall repeat our comments for that passage, four short paragraphs. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, where Isaac is distinguished from Ishmael, and it says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in, in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah had said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The use of the term monogenes here, which is a Greek word that literally means only begotten, where there are clearly other sons, informs us that the term must represent a Hebrew idiom, <clears throat> and therefore it should not necessarily be translated as only begotten. The translators of the Septuagint must have understood this idiom, where they wrote, Thy son, the beloved one, in reference to Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where in the King James Version, the corresponding Hebrew was literally translated as thy son, thine only son. In his own writing, Flavius Josephus also used this Hebrew idiom in the same manner as the term was used in Antiquities, book 1, and in Antiquities Book 20. The noted translator of Josephus, William Whiston, makes note of the idiom at those points in his translation, and shows that the term was used metaphorically for best beloved or most loved, as we had written here in this passage of Hebrews. And as the Septuagint translators clearly understood when they translated Genesis chapter 22 verse 2 into Greek from Hebrew. For this reason we have translated the term in the same manner where it appears in several other places in the Gospel and Epistles of John, which are all in John chapter 1, John chapter 3, and in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4. 
So with this understanding, it is also manifest that by no means do those passages which refer to Christ as God's only begotten Son, which is evidently an idiom for most beloved Son, conflict with the statements describing the children of Adam or of Israel as the children of God, which are found in Deuteronomy chapter 14, in the Septuagint in Psalm 28, Psalm 82, Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 10, Acts chapter 17, Romans chapter 8, Hebrews chapters 2 and 12, and 1 John chapter 3. Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, as Paul described him, is the most beloved of the many sons and daughters of Yahweh. That was the extent of our commentary on this term monogenes when we presented our Hebrews translation. But perhaps it may be said that Christ is the most unique of the sons and daughters of Yahweh or the most special After I presented that portion of my Hebrews commentary here back in December of 2016, a Greek reading friend, whom I have mentioned before in these presentations, had suggested to me that perhaps monogenes means unique, since it may indeed literally be read one of a kind. This suggests a different derivation for the word, which is a compound of manos, which is single, alone, or solitary, and the stem, genes, monogenes. Examining my friend's suggestion, I investigated the assertion in academic papers found on the internet. First, it is explained that the way in which the word monogenes is rendered in Popular translations such as the King James Version as only begotten is to suggest that that stem, genes, is derived from the verb geneo, which basically means to beget. In my earlier notes on this word, I had taken this derivation for granted, that it is true, which is evident in the citation of my Hebrews commentary, which we just read. So one counter-argument I assessed had asserted that instead the stem genes is derived from the word genos, which can mean kind. But then I realized that one of the scholars who made this argument, Daniel Wallace, the senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, missed something quite important. He missed the plausible, and what I believe is the more plausible possibility, that the stem is derived from genea and not genos. According to Liddell and Scott, the word genea, which is a close synonym of genos, they can both mean race, can also be used to refer to circumstances of birth such as the time or place of birth. 
That particular use is not attributed to the word genos in the lexicons, but only to genea. So in a Homeric dictionary by George Ottenreath, we see an entry for a word, leukagenes, luke with the same stem, genes, and luke means light. It comes from the Greek word luknos, which is related to the Latin word lux, lux, l-u-x, and that in turn to Lucifer, l-u-c-i. In this Homeric dictionary, we see an entry for the word leukagenase, which is translated as light-born, meaning born of light, which was used as an epithet for Apollo as the sun god. This seems to have also been a consideration when choosing the word genea rather than genos, when coining the name for my own website, Christogenia, as it can have an additional aspect of meaning, and that's just a digression. While some uses of the stem genes in compound words do support the idea that it refers to kind, other uses, like in leukagenes, support the idea that it refers to birth, and we must assume that there was no set rule for the derivation of the stem in Greek grammar. We interpreted the word genea as birth in a passage in Acts chapter 8 verse 33, which refers to Christ and says, In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall describe his birth? For his life is taken from the earth. So therefore, my opinion will remain that monogenes represents an idiomatic translation of a Hebrew term which means to refer to the most loved of a kind or class. As we can see by comparing, as I pointed out in those notes, by comparing the English translations and meaning of the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 22 verse 2, and in turn comparing that with the Greek citations of that passage, which are found in Josephus and in Paul, which we have already illustrated. So I will remain steadfast that monogenes in at least some instances in John means best loved. Now the apostle begins to describe the testimony of John the Baptist concerning the Christ. Johannes testifies concerning him and cried out saying this was he whom I said he coming after me, he is preferred over me, because he was before me. Although the verb giganin is the perfect tense third person singular form of ginomahi, which means to be, here it is rendered in the present tense as he is. Liddell and Scott have at ginomahi that when it's followed by a predicate, to come into a certain state, to become, and in past tenses means to be so-and-so, so it can be translated in the present. The preposition 
and prostin is preferred over here rather than simply before because the word must be distinguished from protos which has a similar meaning and which is translated before at the end of the verse. In the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English Lexicon we see at emprosthen that of degree it can mean preferred, preferred over. Giving an example of the phrase emprosthen to dikahiu which is preferred before justice. And that phrase is from the Iliad of Homer. Rather than the phrase, this was he whom I said, some manuscripts have, this was he speaking. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the entire phrase having a pronoun in its place. So it has this verse to read, Johannes testifies concerning him and cried out saying, he who is coming after me, he is preferred before me or over me because he was before me. But as our text reads the verse, the apostle is evidently citing an event where John the Baptist himself had recollected his earlier testimony of Christ. This can fit circumstances which we see in the other Gospels, which we can perceive from comparing, for instance, Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 7. But none of the other Gospel accounts reflect it completely. However, we must realize once again that John being the only Gospel writer who was present for the entire ministry of Christ was able to provide details which the other writers could not provide. As we have already said, John may have purposely sought to that to do that when he wrote this gospel. Now, regardless of whether or not we think that John the Baptist had recognized his own cousin on his mother's side, or should have recognized. whether he should have recognized his own cousin, Yahshua of Nazareth. The record states that John was at least six months older than his cousin, according to Luke chapter 1. The record also fully implies that the ministry of John the Baptist started long before that of Christ. We plainly see that here, where John is already baptizing. And the ministry of Christ is said to have begun once Christ was baptized by John. So here we must ask, how could Yahshua be before John, unless Yahshua was the promised Messiah, unless he was God incarnate? John admits elsewhere here that he did not recognize, that he knew him not that he did not recognize his own cousin. They must have been separated for quite some time. So here the Apostle John certainly seems to be invoking the testimony of John the Baptist as yet another proof that Yahshua is the Messiah, Yahweh incarnate as a man, a promise which Yahweh had made frequently and explicitly in the words of the prophet Isaiah, where he said things such as, I Yahweh am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, and beside me there is no God.
Now John takes a digression from his description of the testimony of John the Baptist and makes a parenthetical statement. Because we have all received from of his fullness and favor for the sake of favor. For the law had been given through Moses. The favor and the truth have come through Yahshua Christ. And there are several variations in certain of these verses, this being one of them. None of them are really significant enough to change the meaning. Here the phrase, Karen anti-caritas, is favor for the sake of favor. While the word anti is most literally against, Liddell and Scott explain that it may mean for the sake of in certain contexts. Although citing this very passage, they also say that the phrase may mean ever-increasing grace. We have all received from of his fullness ever-increasing grace. The word charis, commonly grace in the King James Version, is usually favor in the Christianian New Testament. The word has a wide range of meanings relating to grace, favor, gratification, gratitude, delight, and even pleasure, among other things in various contexts. The favor in Christ is explicitly promised in the prophecy of Jeremiah directly in relation to the promise of a new covenant which is found in Jeremiah chapter 31 where after having already promised at the end of chapter 30 that his anger would not return upon Israel the word of Yahweh says at the same time saith Yahweh will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people thus saith Yahweh the people who were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness or favor in the wilderness even Israel when I went to cause him to rest that rest that the fleeing woman received from the face of the serpent in Revelation chapter 12 Yahweh had appeared of old unto me saying yeah I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. When this was written, the children of Israel had already been put off in divorce by Yahweh their God for having violated the law which was given through Moses. As John states here, these words in Jeremiah were written over a hundred years after most of the families of both Israel and Judah were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, when only the inhabitants of Jerusalem and a few small remnants of scattered Israelites elsewhere had remained in Palestine. So the promise of grace in Christ is for those same Israelites who were promised a new covenant and it is meant for nobody else. The promise of grace is, is for those Israelites who were spared the sword 
who survived the Assyrian invasions. And when they received that promise, they were in the wilderness and not necessarily in Palestine. So Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Likewise, if one was never under the law, meaning that if one did not descend from the ancient children of Israel, then one has no part in the adoption of sons, which in the context of the New Testament is actually the placing of those who are already sons into their rightful position in the household of Yahweh, sons and daughters. So we read in Psalm 130, let Israel hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Unless one is a scattered Israelite, there is no promise of grace in Christ. None. The favor in Christ is the mercy which the children of Israel received because they were under penalty of death for having violated the law which came through Moses. So Paul also explained in Ephesians chapter 1 where he referred to Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood, the dismissal of transgressions in accordance with the riches of his favor, that same word, grace which he makes abundant for us, with all wisdom and understanding having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his satisfaction, which he purposed within himself for the stewardship of the full measure of the times, to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth in him, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being preordained according to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will. The mystery of the will of God, the design of the will of God, the predestination made by God, the promise of the dismissal of transgressions, all of these things are found outlined for the children of Israel in the words of the prophets of God. And Yahshua Christ is that word made flesh, and that word being made flesh Anything which is not already found in that word, he cannot be said to represent. So John says, No one ever yet having seen Yahweh, the only born God, the only born God, he being in the bosom of the Father, he has explained, this verse is difficult to read. The idiom for monogenes seems to be used seems to be a different idiom or perhaps a literal having a literal intention. And the various emendations of it of this verse 
among the manuscripts certainly seem to reflect that assessment that it is difficult to understand. This verse also contains the second occurrence of the word monogenes in John's writing. The Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece in both the 27th and 28th editions reads this verse to say Theon Udais Heorakin Popota which is no one ever yet having seen Yahweh. It's very direct and liberal, literal, a very direct and a literal translation. Monogenes Theos, the only born God. Ho on aiston kapan tu patros, he being in the bosom of the Father, which is absolutely word for word a literal translation. Ekinos exegesato which means he has explained. And ekinos is a pronoun which refers to which refers to what had preceded. So it's the pronoun that had preceded. He has explained. It's that one has explained in some contexts. It's referring back to Christ. The first occurrence of Theos is in the accusative case in this passage. So it's the object of the verb heirakin, which is the third person singular perfect tense of horao, or which is horao is to see. So it's having seen here. No one yet having, ever yet having seen God. The phrase monogenes Theos or only born God, as well as both of the pronouns which we translated as he, ho, and echinos, are all in a nominative case, and they must all refer back to the subject, which is Christ, who is mentioned in the preceding verse. Yahshua Christ being one with the Father, as he himself informs us, is therefore described as the only born God here, and it is he who has explained the unseen Father. As for this word monogenes, since it modifies the noun for God, we simply could not render it according to the idiom as most loved. So we had to render it literally as only born. The verse in that manner is not too difficult to understand, having been rendered as literally as possible. While there is no definite article accompanying monogenes in, in, in the text, or, or monogenes theos in the text, it is present, there is an article present in the 3rd century papyrus P75 and some later manuscripts.
along with versions of the passage found in Clement of Alexandria and Origen. I'm not wild about those people, but they did seek to witness to Scripture. Yet Clement, and also the Codex Alexandrinus, the majority text, and other later manuscripts have ho monogenes, monogenes huios rather than theos, or as we would translate that phrase, the most beloved son, rather than monogenes theos, or only born God. That reading, which is found in the majority text, also explains the King James Version, which it follows here. The King James Version has only begotten son, following the majority text, and the Codex Alexandrinus and Clement of Alexandria, which have ho monogenes huios, or son, rather than monogenes theos, or God. Versions of Irenaeus, the early Christian writer, and other late manuscripts have I may homonogenes huios, where the beginning of the verse would be read, No one has ever yet seen Yahweh except the Most Beloved Son. And Irenaeus's version further adds to that, Theu, or the Most Beloved Son of God. Our text here follows the early 3rd century papyrus P66 and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimi and these are all the earliest manuscripts, which other later versions, other later manuscripts, and early church fathers also follow. P75 also essentially supports our reading. As a digression, here of all places where it appears in the New Testament, it may make sense to interpret the stem genes as kind and monogenes as one of a kind or unique, as Yahweh certainly is the only true God. But we will continue to interpret the word as we have elsewhere, although we will read it literally here, rather than according to the idiom which we described in verse 14, because it refers to God and not to a son, following the oldest and what we believe are the most reliable manuscripts. So according to at least a preponderance of the older and better manuscripts which attest to this passage, Yahshua Christ is the only born God, the monogenes theos. A parallel to John's words here is found in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul of Tarsus described Yahshua the Christ as he in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Up until the time of Christ, no one had ever seen God. But once Yahshua Christ was manifest, he could be seen by men. So Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, in response to the inquiry of Philip, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how then do you say, Show us the Father? that Yahshua Christ is the firstborn of every creature, merely indicates that even before the creation, Yahweh knew that he would have to come into the creation as a member, as an element of his own creation. In that same manner, he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world as he is described in Revelation chapter 13. Now the Apostle returns to his description of the testimony of John the Baptist in verse 19. And this is the testimony of Johannes. When the Judeans from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him, that they could ask him, What are you? And he admitted, and denied not, and he admitted that I am not the Christ. There are some minor variations among the manuscripts here. I will spare you from reading them. Notice a distinction which John makes here, where he says priests and Levites. In the law, all of the priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Properly, the priests were only a portion of the Levites, those of the descendants of Aaron. Flavius Josephus also used the terms together, priests and Levites, throughout his histories. But it is also evident in the pages of the histories of Josephus, and in other sources, such as the writings of Eusebius of Caesarea, that not all priests were Levites from the time of the rule of the first Herod who was appointed king of Judea by the Romans sometime around 36 BC. Perhaps because they understood the prophecy of Daniel, which accurately dates the beginning and end of the ministry of Christ. Or perhaps from other sources, as the account of the Magi recorded in Matthew chapter 2 indicates is a possibility. There were apparently many in Israel who were anticipating the appearance of the Messiah at this time. This is made evident later in John chapter 1, where it is recorded that Andrew had exclaimed to his brother Simon, later known as Peter, that we have found the Messiah. It is later evident in John chapter 4, where the Samaritan woman tells Joshua at the well that I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. In Matthew chapter 2, it is recorded that upon the report of the Magi to Herod, the Edomite king, 
that when Herod had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So here we see that perhaps 30 years later, the officials at the temple in Jerusalem were still watching in fear for the manifestation of Christ, and John answered them according to their fear. And we continue with verse 21. And they asked him, Then what? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, No. There are many contentious people who misunderstand statements found elsewhere in the Gospels and who insist that John the Baptist was the reincarnated Elijah, imagining in that same manner that the scriptures verify reincarnation. But here John the Baptist denies being Elijah, and the Apostle John accepts that denial is truth. In fact, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, meaning that he had the same mentality or attitude and abilities and favor from God. But he was not Elijah himself. So we read in a prophecy of John the Baptist, recorded at Luke chapter 1, verse 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then they said to him, Who are you that we could give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say concerning yourself? The Apostle John had attested here in verse 19 that the Judeans from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to John the Baptist in order to question him. So we see a plural authority higher than these priests. But other than the Roman governor, as Jerusalem was under direct control, direct Roman control at the time. Later in this gospel, we shall see that the authority John refers to must be Annas and Caiaphas, the Sadducees, who were the current and former high priests of the time. In Josephus, in Antiquities, Book 20, we read, Herod was then made king by the Romans, but did no longer appoint high priests out of the family of Hasmonius, but made certain men to be so that were of no eminent families, but barely of those who were priests, excepting that he gave that dignity to Aristobulus. And a little further on, accordingly, the number of the high priests from the days of Herod until the days when Titus took the temple in the city and burnt them were in all twenty-eight. The time also that belonged to them was a hundred and seven years. That would be counting from 36 BC inclusively. Some of these were the political governors of the people under the reign of Herod and under the reign of Archelaus, his son, although after their death the government became an aristocracy and the high priests were entrusted with a dominion over the nation. And thus, thus much may suffice to be said concerning our high priests.
In other words, the high priests had dominion over the internal affairs of Judea, while a Roman governor, either of the rank of proconsul or procurator, oversaw Roman interests within the province. <coughs> but we have a problem here with Whiston's translation as well, where he said that Herod appointed high priests of no eminent families, <coughs> but barely of those who were priests accepting that he gave that dignity to Aristobulus. What did he mean by barely priests? One is of the family of Aaron, or one is not. But the truth is that there is no word for barely in the Greek texts of Josephus, although there is a word which means alone. We must translate the same words, but of those who were insignificant, that's where Whiston has, of no eminent families, and alone of those who are priests, only one, Aristobulus, to whom he assigned a dignity. That's what the Greek says meaning that of all of his other appointments to the office of high priest, none of them, besides Aristobulus, were actually priests. When we discuss Annas and Caiaphas, where they appear later in this gospel, we will establish from elsewhere in Josephus that they were of the party of the Sadducees, which is also evident in Acts chapter 5. During the time of the first Herod, he appointed and unseated high priests at will. Later, after his death and the troubles with his successor and son, Herod Archelaus, the Romans kept the privilege for themselves. Apparently, Pontius Pilate appointed Caiaphas to the office of high priest during the time of Christ. Later, from 41 AD, the privilege fell upon Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of the first Herod, who was appointed king of Judea by the Romans. His death is recorded in Acts chapter 12, and his son, Herod Agrippa II, had the privilege after him. In any event, we see that from the time of the first Herod, the office of high priest was merely a political appointment, and true sons of Aaron did not fill the position. The Apostle continues with his testimony of John the Baptist, with the testimony of John the Baptist. He said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the prince, just as Isaiah the prophet had spoken those words belonging to John the Apostle. Here John records a reply, which is a citation of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh, 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. This passage of Isaiah is cited in reference to John the Baptist in all four Gospels. The comfort of which Isaiah had spoken invokes thoughts of Christ as the Comforter, the Holy Spirit described later in John's Gospel. Paul also spoke of comfort in this manner in the opening chapter of his second epistle to the Corinthians. The pardoning iniquity the pardoning of iniquity in Christ is related to Yahweh whose way is prepared by the messenger. Christ must therefore be Yahweh as John had said here. Christ had explained the invisible God and Christ was the word made flesh. So in him the glory of God is revealed. That is the doxa for which we wrote splendor but the King James Version, glory, here in verse 14. In Luke chapter 7, it is recorded that disciples of John the Baptist had gone to Christ to inquire of him, to ask him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So Christ answered in reference to John himself, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Saying that, while the meaning is similar to the prophecy of Isaiah, Christ was instead referring to the prophecy of John the Baptist found in Malachi, where it says in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. John continues his description of the inquisition of John the Baptist. And those who were sent from, who were sent, were from all the Pharisees. And they asked him, and said to him, Then why do you immerse, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor a prophet, immerse as in baptize? So in that same chapter, chapter 7 of Luke, which we just cited, the apostle recorded the reaction of those who heard what things Yahshua Christ had answered. For the men who came from John the Baptist, and all the people that heard him, and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. 
But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Explaining the use of ritual baptism among early Judeans and later amongst the Jews, and in reference to the baptism of John, the 17th century cleric John Lightfoot, in his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, explained that observing from these things how very known and frequent the use of baptism was among the Jews. The reason appears very easy why the Sanhedrin, by their messengers, inquired not of John concerning the reason of baptism, but concerning the authority of the baptizer. Not what baptism meant, but whence or from where he had a license so to baptize. In reference to this very passage of the Gospel of John, did John Lightfoot write those words. Now John the Apostle, everybody here is named John except me, thankfully. Now John the Apostle continues to speak of the testimony of John the Baptist. Johannes replied to them saying, I immerse in water, in your midst stands he whom you do not know, he coming after me, of whom I am not worthy, that I loosen the strap of his sandal. John then notes that these things happened in Bethania, or in Bethany, across the Jordan, where Johannes was immersing, or baptizing. In other places we read another answer from John, John the Baptist, ostensibly given at another time, which according to the King James Version of Luke chapter 3 reads, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So water baptism was for John, but the baptism of Christ is different. Below in verse 33 we will see still another confirmation of the difference between the baptism of John and that of Christ. But at this point we must ask why John baptized with water, and why even Christ himself was baptized by John. That is answered only in the law in the concept of Christ as the Lamb of God, and in the prophecy of John the Baptist found in Malachi chapter 3, which we have already cited in part where Christ himself attributed or described the prophecy to be of John. So a little further on in Malachi chapter 3, it says, And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Then, in regard to the priests, we said the following.
In our presentation of Luke chapter 3 originally, given here in June of 2012, and we repeated it in our presentation of Malachi chapter 3, given here more recently in February of 2017. In the Old Testament, washing of the body is seen of the priests before they enter into the temple to do service and to make sacrifice. From Leviticus chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which Yahweh commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and washed them with water. And from Numbers chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, And the Levites were purified, and they washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as an offering before Yahweh. And Aaron made an atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that went the Levites in to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Aaron and before his sons, as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So did they unto them. All of Numbers chapter 8 describes the cleansing of the Levites. Aside from these passages concerning the priests, or certain occasions where people are instructed in what to do upon exposure to diseases or corpses, or certain other circumstances, there is no other ritual cleansing of the body required by the law. Remember the words of Yahweh in the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. John the Baptist was also a Levite, so he could fulfill the priestly role of cleansing, which Moses the Levite had done first, long before him. Christ himself, and that's the end of my citation from my very old, six years, right, presentation of Luke chapter 3. Christ himself, who was the Lamb of God, was the offering that they offered in righteousness, the righteousness being the will of God. So while he was the Passover lamb, as we shall see, he was also a sin offering. Thus we read in the law concerning sin offerings in Leviticus chapter 1, but his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water. In verse 9 and in verse 13, but he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all, and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. So John the Baptist also fulfilled the literal, I'm sorry, the requirement of the ceremonial sacrifice ritual by washing the priests, and also by washing the offering. Continuing with John's testimony of John the Baptist in John 1, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he sees Yahshua coming to him and he says, Look, the Lamb of Yahweh, he removing the error or sin of the society. Of society, there's no article there, I'm sorry. This concept of scripture 
is described explicitly in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, meaning that the children of Israel were in a state of apostasy, divorced from Yahweh. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. If you're not one of the sheep, you're not healed. And Yahweh had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The lamb of God. He removing the error of the society. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? We would probably have lifespan there for the Hebrew word door. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. So if you're not one of those people, you have no grace in Christ, no favor in Christ. So this messianic prophecy declares Christ as a lamb brought to the slaughter on account of the sins of the people. And by that act he took away the sin of the society, meaning the Israelite society, the society of sheep. Later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul of Tarsus makes an analogy of sin and leaven in reference to the Passover, which was celebrated without leaven where he said, Purge out therefore the old leaven. The children of Israel were commanded to get rid of the leaven before the Passover. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The Apostle Peter also wrote of Christ in that manner where he said in chapter 1 of his first epistle, that for as much as you know that we were not redeemed, or ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, only the children of Israel were redeemed once again. The language is all over the Bible. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, 
but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him, for you meaning those people who had these vain traditions received from their fathers, a reference to the sin of the children of Israel, who by him do believe in God, that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Then even later in Revelation, in the Revelation, in chapter 5, we see a reference to a lamb as it had been slain. And in chapters 6 and 7, several more references to the lamb, which is Christ. Then after several other references to the lamb, in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 17, in chapter 21, we read where it describes the city of God. And I saw no temple therein because the Lamb is the tabernacle, right? And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Christ is the Lamb of God, and he is also the light of the world. Finally, we see in Revelation chapter 22, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, where was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, one for each tribe of Israel, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations the Adamic nations, if you will, or the nations of the children of Israel. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. It should become evident to a Christian that the entire dispensation of the Old Testament rituals and feasts were organized with symbolism and allegories that pointed the way to Christ who was their ultimate salvation as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as he is described in Revelation chapter 13. So the original Passover, where the children of Israel were preserved by the blood of a Lamb, was in itself a prophecy of Christ as the Lamb of God, where in Revelation chapter 7 we read of the saints, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And again in chapter 12 concerning Satan, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives under the death. Screw those Jews, we live forever. Again continuing with the testimony of John the Baptist. This is he concerning whom I said, A man comes after me who is preferred over me, because he was before me, and I did not know him, John did not recognize him, even though it was his own cousin. They must have been separated for a long time. And I did not know him, but in order that he would be made manifest to Israel, 
For this reason I came immersing in water, baptizing in water. So John the Baptist understood his own purpose, that he was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, and announce the Messiah himself when he appeared. Now John received a sign, not for the benefit of Christ, but for his own benefit, that he would be certain of his announcement. So the apostle tells us, And Johannes testified, saying, that I observed the Spirit descending as a dove from heaven, and it abode upon him. And I did not know him, but he who has sent me to immerse in water, he said to me, Upon whom you should see the Spirit descending, and abiding upon him, it is he who immerses in the Holy Spirit. Some manuscripts say, and in fire, for we see Matthew 3.11. Many heresies seem to have evolved from misunderstandings of this passage. They don't, the people that create the heresies don't read the entire passage. The spirit descending as a dove was not for the benefit of Christ. And it did not change the nature of Christ, who already had the prescience and splendor of God, as John and the other apostles attest of Christ, even as he was only a child. Rather, the spirit descending as a dove was for the benefit of John, as we are informed here, and as John admits that I did not know him, it is evident that he needed a sign, so he was told by God, Upon whom you should see the Spirit descending and abiding upon him, it is he who immerses in the Holy Spirit. The final line of John's testimony. And I have seen and have testified that he is the Son of Yahweh. The Codex Sinaiticus has ho eclectus in place of ho hoius which is he is the chosen one of yahweh in many other places unrelated to the prophecies concerning christ as the lamb of god we see that the expected messiah is also said to be a particular son of david Hence the reference to the Son, rather than simply a Son. He is the Son of God, the Son of Yahweh. Many errantly think that the distinction of Christ as the Son of God means that he is the only Son of God. An idea which the scriptures very frequently refute. Rather, Christ is a particular Son of God, the Son, the Son who was promised in the Psalms and the Prophets. In Psalm 2, we read, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. 
Yahweh hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten me, thee, begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron, more language, which is later seen in the Revelation. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And this certainly was not talking about David. This was actually David writing. And the, lang the language is later found in the Revelation in relation to Yahshua Christ. Then in Psalm 110, another Psalm of David, Yahweh said unto my Lord, the first occurrence of the Lord in the King James Version comes from the Tetragrammaton, which is Yahweh. The second occurrence comes from the word Adonai, or Adon, which is Lord. It's a common title. Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Christ himself asserted the fact that this passage referred to him, and in reference to this, he challenged the Pharisees by asking them, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? This was recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, as well as in Acts chapter 2, where it is further explained that it did not apply to David. Paul of Tarsus cited both of these psalms frequently in reference to the status of Christ as the appointed son over the creation of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, Paul also cited Psalm 45 in reference to Christ, where it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, firstborn among many brethren, a particular son, not the only son. In Matthew chapter 2, we read an interpretation of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 as it is applied to Christ. But it also certainly applied to Israel as a whole before Christ. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So in Matthew, in reference to the sojourn in Egypt by Joseph and Mary with the Christ child, so that they could escape the wrath of Herod, we read that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. The original meaning referred to the children of Israel. 
so Yahshua Christ, again, no different than his brethren, also came out of Egypt. The concept is seen in one other prominent place, in a prophecy that never actually had any immediate fulfillment in the way it was written. Although in some aspects it had an immediate application. That is in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh the hosts of hosts will perform this. Yahweh sent a word unto Jacob and it has lighted upon Israel, the appointed child, would certainly also be the light of the world. Finally, before shifting his focus to the ministry of Christ, John records one more event from John the Baptist's ministry, which itself serves as a point of transition. The next day, Johannes again stood and two from among the students and looking at Yahshua walking about he says look the Lamb of Yahweh and his two students heard the saying and followed Yahshua we will continue with our discussion of these students when we next resume our presentation of the Gospel of John I'm sorry of the Gospel of John I try to squeeze too many words out of one breath sometimes. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.